Good morning. My name is Dan Song, and I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration. It's good to be together. Uh, as you heard John Peters pray for Yoshi and the shoes, uh, yesterday we had the memorial service for Mike Shu, who's been a dear member of our church, and so that's why you see some of the flower sprays here in the back. But what I found so, so hopeful is that even as we remember his death, and his life uh, is juxtaposed with what we see here with the Christ candle, with the white linen cloths and the white cloths draped over the cross, reminding us that death does not have the final word. And while we grieve and lament and remember Mike, who will no longer join us here on Sunday mornings, um, he's with, he's in the glorious presence of our Savior. And that's an amazing thing. Even as we grieve, we grieve without, we grieve with hope. And so we'll miss Mike. Um, so just continue to pray for Yoshi as they figure out plans for how to care for her, um, but also pray for the shoes. Um, but it's in this Easter tide season in the church calendar. We are reminded of that viscerally, physically, visually here in this room. Um, but we also get to go through. Uh, the Word of God, and we've been, we started an Acts sermon series titled, The Story of the Church, and last week we looked at how in this prelude of the church, Jesus ascends, but before he ascends and joins his Father in heaven, he gives the people, his disciples, a mission, and this mission comes with equipping, that he does not leave them alone, and he says, I'm going to bring the Holy Spirit to you. Well, 10 days later, that day has arrived here in chapter 2. And so I'm going to invite Lisa Salvato, who we got to hear talk about uh, Firm Foundation. She's busy, nursery to an interview. Now she gets to give us the reading of the word. And so uh, let's give attention to God's word from Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Um, sorry, I didn't warn you ahead of time. If you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles for you in, front, in the chair in front of you. And there you could turn to page 909, but we'll also have it on the screen, I think. I think it's on the screen, maybe not, maybe not, I don't know. We'll just roll with it this morning. And so let's give attention to God's word as we hear from Lisa, uh, chapter 2 of Acts. Thanks be to God. One of the reasons we have other people read is so that I don't have to pronounce all those words. <laughs> Pray with me as we come to God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word that endures forever. And we ask that you would speak to us, give us ears to hear and eyes to see so that we might be transformed by the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about the origin story of the church, I decided to kind of Google and quickly do a search on some of the origin stories of companies that are famous, that are known to us. Companies like Samsung, you might have never known that their origin story began when they first opened up in March 1938 as a grocery store where they sold dried fish, vegetables, and noodles. And it wasn't until 1960 that they began selling electronics. And then in 87, divided Samsung into various groups of, one, of which one was Samsung electronics. And then in 93, it just became Samsung, known for all of their electronics. How about Nintendo? I saw some kids this morning playing on their Nintendo Switch, 
Well, they started as a card-making company. And, in, and it was called Nintendo Kopai's Playing Cards. And they were famous in Japan. And people used it widely for gambling, especially the Japanese mafia. <laughs> Fascinating. And it wasn't until 1983 they began making gaming consoles. Wrigley Gum. Maybe one of the worst gums out there, <laughs> right? I mean, you got Juicy Fruit, Spearmint, Big Red, Extra, Hubba Bubba. Kids love Hubba Bubba. But they began as a soap shop. At first, they used to give away free umbrellas if you bought some soap. But then they changed it to selling chew or giving chewing gum with the soaps that they sold. But the chewing gum was so good back then that people started asking for more of the chewing gum than soap. And that's where you get Wrigley gum. It's interesting to think about some of these origin stories. Well, here this morning, we have the origin story of the church. Now, I know some of you might argue, well, Dan, clearly the origin of the church began in the Old Testament when God called Abraham and formed Israel. Okay, I know. But let's not dismiss what happens here in Acts 2. That as these disciples waited, that the church was formed with these men and women in the New Testament. Not just for Jews, but for Gentiles, Greeks, and slaves, men, and women, and children. And thus formed the church that became revolutionary in Rome. And continues to stand today strong in our world. Well, what I want to do briefly this morning is just look at three observations here in this story. And the first here that we want to look at is this waiting for the promise. Now, nowhere here in the verses that we read is, this ver is it stated that they were to wait for the promise. But we actually saw that last week. John, as he preached in chapter 1, Jesus tells them to remain in Jerusalem and wait for the promise. And so here in verse 1, what do we read? They were together in one place. Well, why? Because they listened to Jesus before he ascended to wait and pray. And it was only when they waited and prayed that the Holy Spirit actually come. Now think about that for a moment. What if I told you or your boss told you to just remain and wait and do nothing? We don't like that, do we? We don't like to wait. It goes against the fabric of our culture and our DNA because it's only in doing more and more, the more productive we are, the more we find value and meaning and, 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 um, and validation in ourselves. Isn't that the way life seems to work often? I read a book uh, about a month ago called 4,000 Weeks. And the subtitle is Time Management for Mortals. And what he argues, the author argues, is that our average lifespan is about 4,000 weeks. But there is, this, there is this obsession with productivity that we have that is a toxin to our culture. Because we are wired, hardwired to do more and more and more. But the more and more we do, we realize that because we are limited, and though we try to evade death, we all die. We're all mortal. 
But we think we'll reach utopia if we just become these gurus who finally obtain some success over our time and production and productivity. And he says that's a toxin. Here's a non-Christian, a secular author who says that that does not work in our culture. And here Jesus, what he tells as this, the, the church forms, so he tells us to wait. Wait and pray. Can you imagine for me to do nothing but just wait and pray? It goes against everything we are, not just in the business world, not just in families, but also even in the church. I was reminded this week of a poem by Mary Oliver. And this is what she writes in her poem. She says, attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention. Attention is the beginning of devotion. And these days it's in short supply. There's so many things that vie for our attention, isn't it? It's school activities. It's your work and trying to make promotions. It's our electronics and the social media. And all these different things that take or vie for our attention. That takes away that capacity for true devotion and damages it along the way. This is what Tish Warren in last week's op-ed said or wrote. She said, this is why I feel a sense of responsibility, even obligation not to miss what is all around me. In the frenetic and disintegrated world of screens, smartphones, notifications, and noise, the material, the material world beckons me. The world of skin, dew, morning doves, and evening primroses. It quietly asks us to see, to notice, to attend to its wisdom and beauty. If attention gives birth to devotion, then perhaps part of the mission of people of faith today is to counter distraction by calling people to the goodness and wonder of the material, embodied, and natural world. What vies for our attention? What would it look like to listen to Jesus' words, to remain and wait and pray? Because it's only then does the Holy Spirit come upon the people of God and the church is formed. The second thing we have to take note is the description of the Holy Spirit. Because it's in that room, the 120 people that are gathered that remain and do nothing and wait and pray. It's then that the Holy Spirit comes upon the people and it's the description of which Luke gives account to. And he says it's, it's described as a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It's not wind, but it's like wind. And in verse 3, it's as of fire. So it wasn't fire, but it was like a fire. Now think about this aspect of like a fire. This would have preached for those that were in that room who were Jewish. Because for the people of God, fire meant God's visitation upon his people. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 15, this torch of fire comes upon Abraham and God visits him. Remember Moses in chapter 3, there is a burning bush and God visits 
Moses in that burning bush. When you think about the people of God as they're in the wilderness for 40 years, how does God visit them and how is God present with them? It's by a pillar of fire at night. Now every single time God will visit them by fire and when his presence was near them, what was their reaction? It was fear. They were trembling. The angels had to say, do not be afraid. But do you get that here? No. There is no trembling. There's no fear. Rather, what they experience is power. And they experience God's presence around them. And there is joy and there is contentment. And we'll look at that in the following weeks because it's because of the Spirit that they're able to give of all their goods. They don't care what they have. And there is this security and this love that overwhelms them. No longer fear or terror, but peace and calmness and power that surrounds them. Why? Why is their reaction so different for the first time? Well, we know because of what Jesus told his disciples when he warned them before he left. In John 14, let me read this to you. This is what Jesus says. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That's the Holy Spirit. To be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Yet in a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live and you will live. In, what, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. You see, what they experienced for the first time ever is the presence of their Father in them. They experience the love of God like they have never experienced ever before. Jesus was with them for three years. But for the first time in their life, they're experiencing Jesus' presence in them where there is this security, where there is this unconditional love that overwhelms them in their hearts. And that's what the Spirit does for these disciples as they experience the Holy Spirit like a fire in their hearts. It's God's presence and His love. And He will not leave them as orphans. Church, this is what we need every single day of our lives. And how true this is even today, one day after we experience <coughs> a witness the memorial for Mike's shoe. God does not leave us as orphans even when our earthly fathers pass away. God does not leave us as orphans even if we have horrible relationships with our earthly fathers. God does not leave us alone as orphans even if you do not know who your earthly father is or he's abandoned you. Because the Holy Spirit reminds us emotionally, physically, spiritually, that we have a Father in heaven who loves us unconditionally. That even when the worst is known about you, love is offered because the Holy Spirit has come upon us like a fire. 
Do you believe this? That we have the spirit of adoption in which we can cry, Abba, Father. This is true for every single person who has placed their faith in Christ. But the last thing I want to see here is a reaction of the people that are witnessing this. And their response is, aren't they Galileans? Now, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, not only are they filled with the presence of God and the love of God, what we read is that they begin to speak in other languages. And all these different languages, which as Galileans, they would not have been able to speak. And so Lisa read this for us, but in verse 9, they're speaking in the language of the nations of Parthians and Medes and Elamites and Mesopotamians and Cappadocians and Pontus and in Asia and Frisians and Pamphylians and Egyptians, Libyans and Cyrenes, Cretans and Arabians. They are literally speaking in the language that they are incapable of speaking. And as people see this, they go, aren't they Galileans? Now, that might not mean anything to us, but it's like us saying, aren't these simpletons? Like, aren't they from some like rural country down in the middle of Missouri? No offense if you grew up there, right? <laughs> I'm just trying to, trying to make sense of this. Like, it makes no sense. Aren't these Galileans? But they're speaking in all these languages that I learned that my mom and dad taught me when I grew up as a child. And they're bewildered. And they're astonished. But isn't that the way the gospel always works? Isn't that the way that we see Jesus operate? From the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's always been a small band of ignorant, uneducated men and women from marginal classes with a marginal group of people in a Roman Empire. It's always been the weak. It's always been the poor, the meek. Think about the Beatitudes. It's those that God has always chosen to bring about transformation and change. It's the poor. It's those who mourn the meek, the merciful, the hung, those who hunger for righteousness, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. It's not those from noble places. It's not those with PhDs and doctorates. It's not those who are able to give TED Talks and exegete culture. But it's people who barely know anything that God chooses to use. A small nation like Israel that God uses to transform the world. What value system do we live in as a church? Do we carry on like the culture around us? Or do we invest and love those that are different from us? It's interesting to think about how the church has changed, especially here in the Western world, right? Church has now been associated with power instead of weakness. A certain political party instead of the kingdom of God. Abuse instead of mercy. Pride instead of humility. Hardness instead of repentance. That's 
what the church is becoming known as for a watching world that desperately needs hope. Now what I'm saying this morning is that we need to recapture what God has been doing through His His beautiful church. Can you imagine telling Samsung or Wrigley, recapture what you began as? No, because they've changed in their mission. But the church has never changed in its mission. The church has been steadfast and has never wavered in what God has called the church to be and to do. And it has worked and has transformed our world. And what I want us to do in these weeks as we look through the book of Acts is to recapture what God has called us to be. God calls us to be a people. A people who would continue to wait and pay attention and pray because the kingdom he is building is his and not ours. God is calling us to be a people who are secure in the love of God and to know that his presence is with us, that we don't have to try to prove something that God is doing. And God is calling us to be a people who are weak, tired, foolish, and meek because he uses the weak to shame the wise. That's the church. That's the church. Some will call us crazy, and drunk, as some of, the, some of them did on that day. But others will be amazed and perplexed and say to one another, what does this mean? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you. We ask you that you would help us to be the beautiful bride of Christ that you promise us to be. Yes, we have our warts and we have a lot of ugliness in us, but you look, as, you look at us as beautiful and precious, and you delight in us because of Jesus' blood that was shed. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come to the table now, Lord, strengthen us, encourage us, and help us to be people who wait. Help us to be people who remember the, the profound love you have for us. And help us to be people who do not find our value in strength and power, but in meekness and repentance and in our poverty. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.